Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. Jesus said some hard stuff. Stuff like plucking out your eye and drinking blood. Some truths in the Bible are difficult to understand and even harder to swallow. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, such a person cannot be my disciple. Join us for Hard Candy as we unwrap the hard sayings of Jesus. All right, hey, welcome everyone to Hard Candy. We got to give a big liquid church welcome. The rest of our church family, they're joining us in Mountainside, Nutley, New Brunswick. Give them a hand, guys. Great to have you with us. Glad you're joining us today. I'm Pastor Tim. And uh, did you all get a hard candy on the way in? Everybody should have gotten a jawbreaker. That's what we're giving out today at all our campuses. We are unwrapping the hard sayings of Jesus contrary to popular belief. Jesus did not just, um, you know, mouth these pious platitudes, like, can't we all just get along? Rather, Jesus said some hard stuff, stuff that's difficult to understand, and if we're honest, even harder to swallow. For instance, what about Matthew 18, where Jesus said this? He said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. That Does he mean that literally? I mean, if he does, every 14-year-old boy who's seen a uh, Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, we have a problem, right? We would have a church full of pirates, arg, kind of thing. What does Jesus mean by that? You know, it's a hard saying. Or how about Luke uh, 14, where Jesus says this. He says, uh, if anyone wants to come to me and does not hate their father and mother, wife and kids, brothers and sisters, even their own life, such a person can't be my disciple. Like, wait a minute, what? Hate your parents? Like, some of you are like, no problem. Already do. That's done. You know, what a, isn't Jesus the guy who said, love your enemies? So, you know, hate your parents, love your enemies. It seems like a contradiction. What about your enemies, by the way? What about people who hurt you? You know what Jesus says? When you get in a fight, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, what? Turn to them the other also. I am not sure I want Jesus as my wingman in a bar fight. You know, it's a little bit, what's he saying here? Does it mean you let people walk all over you, take advantage of you? Jesus clarifies. He says, yeah, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. This is not what you call a winning strategy for legal representation, right? Jesus is not a lawyer here. So who lives this stuff out? They're difficult to understand and hard to swallow. And that's the idea behind the series. Many of the things that Jesus said are like hard candy. If you just take them at face value and bite into them, you're going to break your teeth. You're going to break your jaw. You're going to wind up at the dentist. Rather, Jesus kind of says, suck on this. So that's what I want you to do. Go ahead. You can take your jawbreaker if you haven't. Oh, you can suck on that. Turn it over in your mouth. And this is actually going to be hard for me to preach this way. I'll tell you what. You get that one, Todd. You just enjoy that, okay? That's a bonus for you. We, I want you to enjoy this because we're going to peel back the layers and kind of absorb some of the deeper things that Jesus says about being his disciple. This is a series about discipleship. What is the cost of actually following Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Because he said stuff that touches every area of our life, from sex to money. Some of it's uncomfortable. A lot of it's convicting. Like the time Jesus said to a guy, he said, uh, go sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. And then come follow me. Like, what do you do? Is that a command for every Christian or just the super spiritual? It makes us a little bit uncomfortable to think about. 
When it comes to the hard sayings of Scripture, I like what Mark Twain said. He said this, I, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Some of this stuff, we actually know what Jesus is saying, but it's just hard to obey or swallow. So here's what we're going to do. Every week, we're going to suck on some of these hard sayings and peel back the layers, take time to kind of absorb the deeper meaning of Jesus's words and what it means for our everyday life as Christ followers. And each week, to kind of keep this fun, what we're going to do is we're going to give you some old school candy. We have bought thousands of pieces of this old school kind of vintage candy from when I was a little kid. When I was a kid growing up, we had a place, it was called Plains Pharmacy. And uh, it was like CVS, but it was like a mom and pop drugstore. And they had penny candy at the counter. And there was this old guy there, Charlie, who would stand behind the, uh, the candy counter and he would say, give me a quarter and you can have as much as you can fit in your hand. And we were like in fifth grade, we'd give Charlie a quarter. We'd be like, oh yeah, we get all the jawbreakers, right? And then you realize you're in fifth grade, you can fit about 10 in your hand. So Charlie was ripping us off, you know? But here's, these are the ones that I love the most. I did like jawbreakers. Does anybody remember this one? This is kind of a fun one. Do you remember the strawberry? Look at this one, the little strawberry with the jelly. Did your grandma have that in a dish? Right? With little hairs stuck to it and like kind of, I, I know, I know. How about uh, this one? Oh, this is a classic, the butterscotch. I had an uncle who would fill his pockets with butterscotch and dole them out. And then this one I'm saving for the final message of the series. This is, you guys know this one, an atomic fireball. It's a red hot. I'm saving this because the final message is called Hell No. It's about hell. And so I figured you should have something hot to suck on. When we talk about that, is hell real? Like, I mean, is that just a scare tactic in the Bible? We're going to talk about that. That's when you get the red hot. Does anybody want it right now? Here. Okay, there you go. Enjoy. Enjoy. You know, go to hell. You know, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say to you. I don't. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. All right. Let's jump in here. I gave you a jawbreaker because we're going to look at the original hard teaching of Jesus. It's in John chapter six. So open your Bible there, would you? This is the gospel of John and something Jesus said here so upset his followers that many of them just walked away at this point. They said, this is too much. We are out. John 6, start at verse 53. Jesus said this, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has what? Say this together, has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. You'll be resurrected. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And if you look at verse 60, it says, On hearing this, many of the disciples said, This is a what? It's a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Who can swallow this? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this what? Offend you. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And you can see here in John 6, this original saying of Jesus was hard for his disciples to swallow because it was obscure. They didn't really understand it. And it was offensive. It was like, that's kind of disgusting. I mean, think about this. Eating flesh, drinking blood. You know, his disciples were like, Jesus you know, WTF, why the face? You know, kind of like, ah, what is he talking about here? It almost seems like Jesus is advocating cannibalism, right? Did you know that? That that was an accusation against the early Christians. In the first and second century, when they were persecuting Christians, one of the main accusations in the early church is that Christians are a bunch of cannibals. I looked it up this week, the early records of Octavius, um, the Roman historian, he said, Christians are an abominable assembly 
who worship a secret sign, the cross. It would be like worshiping an electric chair, right? And they're obsessed with death. They eat the flesh and drink the blood of their leader. So basically, Christians were seen as like this death cult. They're like obsessed with darkness and death and cannibalism. And that fueled a lot of persecution in the first century for the early church. It's absolutely fascinating. They would go on a witch hunt for Christians. It's kind of like, you know, kill the zombies, you know? I want to suck your blood. Yuck! So at first glance, 100 years, this saying of Jesus was thrown in their face and used as ammo. And you see this in verse 60. On hearing it, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And that word accept there really is who can swallow, who could absorb this? Because Jesus' audience in the first century was primarily Jewish, which meant this is wildly offensive. It says, aware that his disciples were grumbling, Jesus said to them, does this what? Does it offend you? And it's like, well, yeah, okay? Think about this. Their Bible at this point is the Old Testament, which said for Jewish people, even eating meat, that had blood in it, was forbidden in the Old Testament law. You couldn't eat cow meat. You couldn't eat lamb meat that had blood in it. It was taboo. So this idea of like drinking human blood, you should even, why would you even say that, Jesus? What are you trying to do? That's macabre. And Jesus, they literally would have been like, hey, if you're trying to get a crowd of religious Jews to follow you, this is actually how you drive them away. This is how you repulse them. And maybe it seems like that for you. I remember as a kid, and uh, I was, you know, growing up in the church, and um, there was a guy in our church who loved those T-shirts that kind of were our parody, you know, of, like, popular culture. So instead of Gold's Gym, it says, like, God's Gym. And he wore this one shirt that was crazy. I was seven years old, and I will never forget this. He walks into church, and he's got this red shirt on, and it looks like the Budweiser beer logo, and it has a giant beer glass filled with blood in it, and it says, this blood's for you. And I was like, that's not clever. That's disgusting. You know, like that is like, ah, you know, that's how the disciples, they're like, okay, that's, this is, can we just talk about serving the poor Jesus? Let's go back to that. Okay. Like eating flesh, drinking, that's gross. It's disgusting. And as a Jewish rabbi, pardon me, but what the heck are you intentionally trying to offend people? And verse 66 says, that's what happened. From that time, many of his followers turned back and no longer follow Jesus. And see, this is the heart of what it means to be his disciple. At some point in your walk with God, Jesus will offend you. Think about that. I could say, what's your, what's your favorite saying of Jesus? And you guys would have all sorts of things. You might say, oh, I love when he says, you know, I'll never leave you, forsake you, or don't be afraid. Don't let your hearts be troubled. My yoke is easy. My burden is light, right? He says some wonderful, peaceful things like we talked about in the last series. But that doesn't exempt you from wrestling with some of the harder truths that Jesus gave his disciples to suck on. In his commentary on this, uh, author F.F. Bruce writes this. He says, it's all too easy for us to believe in a Jesus who's a construct of our own imagination, an inoffensive person who actually nobody would actually trouble to crucify. But the Jesus who you meet in the Gospels, he offends people right and left. Even his loyal followers found him at times confusing because he spoke of God in terms of an intimacy that sounded like blasphemy. He kept very questionable company, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. And he says stuff that seems like they're going to kill you if you follow down this road. But in those who weren't put off by Jesus, he created this passion, this loyalty that death couldn't even destroy. In Jesus, they came to know God in a new way. Here was the life of God being lived out in a real human life and saying, this is available to you. And so this is a challenge for you and I 
to take Jesus at face value, not try to water him down or get him to say something that kind of makes us feel comfortable or give a thumbs up basically to our sin, but to press in and let his truth kind of rub up against our heart. And on the surface uh, at times, you know, it seems like it may offend us a little bit. So let me challenge you this way. If you've never been offended by Jesus in your walk with God, it's probably because you haven't been close to Christ. If you spend time close, getting closer to Christ, he will offend you because he loves you. God will intentionally say things that are designed to upset the status quo in your heart and cause you to question, am I really a disciple? Am I a Christian? Am I a follower of Jesus, an authentic one? And here in John, some of them say, no, I, I didn't sign up for this, right? I'm not going to eat flesh. I'm not going to drink blood, whatever that even means. Your, your, your truth is offensive. It's hard to swallow. If you look here in John 6, I want to look at the kind of disciples who abandoned ship and then those who actually pressed in and followed him. And there are two kinds that you'll probably identify if you spend any time in church. The first are what I would call wonder bread believers, okay? People who follow Jesus for all the wonders and the blessings and everything Jesus can give, the miracles, the material blessings, wonder bread. And the second are the stale bread believers, people who follow Jesus out of religious routine. Maybe you grew up in a Christian family or you went to CCD or Sunday school and you just assume, hey, my family's were Christian, so I think I'm a Christian, you know. But if I asked you, so what's God talking to you about? You're like, ah, not a whole lot. It's just your faith is kind of stale. There's like the glory days and then the kind of the life you're living now. And if you look at each of these sets of believers, we're going to look at them here in John 6, which would you more identify with? Because you have to ask, why was Jesus drawing such a big crowd at this point? Do you know Why? Look at the beginning of chapter 6. Do you see the first few verses? You'll see it says, Jesus feeds the 5,000. See, this takes place at the height of Jesus' teaching and healing ministry. In other words, he's curing the sick. He's performing miracles. And so thousands of people are flocking to see Jesus. And in fact, here, more than 5,000 people show up and they have nothing to eat. Now, you probably know the rest, right? He takes five loaves of Wonder Bread, you know, two fish, and voila, fish sandwiches for everybody. Woo! wonder bread and he gives takeout there's leftover yeah it's a miracle and the crowd is like wonder bread we love this and give us more jesus more feed me more and that's how some christians live the rest of their life they follow christ around from church to church primarily for the blessings that he can give them it's kind of like the bless me crowd right God, your prayers go like this. Lord, bless my business. Uh, bless my search for a spouse. Bless my health. Bless my, bless my, bless. It's basically, I follow Jesus for what he can do for me, for what his miracles, his wonders, his blessings are. So I come to church when, you know, maybe I have a crisis and I need help or there's a material need. I check in with Jesus when I really, really need something. But Wonder Bread disciples are basically folks who are passionate about what Jesus provides them, not for Jesus himself, his flesh and blood, not his essence. And Jesus calls them out here in verse 26. Look what he says. Jesus answered, you're looking for me because you ate the loaves and you what? You had your fill. In other words, you love me for what I offer you, not for who I am, not for my flesh and my blood, wonder bread disciples. Every church has them. I call them Christians with benefits. You know, friends with benefits, right? You're in a relationship because you kind of get a little bit something on the side. It's like that. That's what Jesus is talking about. You're after me for my miracles and all that kind of stuff. But the moment you hear something you don't like, stop sleeping with your girlfriend. Whoa, back off. <laughs> Honor God with your money. Tithe. Whoa, that's a little bit too close there, okay? I'm not, I'm not sure this is relevant anymore to my needs, okay? They're gone. 
We have, we, have, we have Wonder Bread believers at Liquid who come for three or six months and everything's brand new. I love the messages. I love the outreach. This is so relevant. I'm not so sure about that though. I just heard some tens of things I don't like. Wonder Bread disciples, when they're invited to go deeper, they back off. They walk away because it's hard to swallow. Can we just go back to the Wonder Bread? The second type of disciples who choke on his words are stale bread disciples. This is basic. Maybe, maybe, why are you here in church today? Can I just ask you that? What got you up? What brought you to church today, right? You made time. You're here like, man, I'm here, man. Um, Because I heard you're giving out candy. You know, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know why you're here. Some of you, it may be because you've been going to church your whole life. How many of you grew up in a Christian family? You were going to church or or synagogue or something like that. Okay, cool. How many of you went to a Christian school? You kind of, all right, I went to a Christian college. All right, cool. And, and maybe that's your heritage. It's what you were taught by your mom or dad to do. And that's why some disciples were following Jesus. Look at verse 31. He says, why are you here? He says, well, our ancestors, our mom and dad, they ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're talking about the miracle manna that God fed the Jewish people with in Exodus 16. Thousands of years before, when they're wandering in the desert in the Old Testament, God provides manna, miracle bread, the frosted flakes. You know, he provides for them and it nourishes them in the desert. And for generations, Jewish grandfathers would tell it to their sons and they would tell it to their sons. And it was part of the glory days uh, from a bygone era. I think we still have that today. Have you ever talked to a Christian and you said, hey, so tell me about your spiritual journey. And the only thing they can tell you is a story from years ago or even decades in some cases. Last week, I was talking to a guy who's new to our church. Again, no judgment. I was just trying to get to know. I said, oh, so tell me, you know, about your relationship with Jesus. And his answer was interesting because he said, well, um, I grew up Methodist and um, I went to church with my parents. And in fact, my mom actually was in the choir and I helped lead uh, the youth group. I was like, very cool. I go, and so what, what is Jesus, you know, talking to you about now? Because he's in his 30s. And he's like, well, my, my mom was in the choir, and I went to VBS as well. So I, I've been always pretty involved in the church. And I was like, got it. How about, like, just, you know, just recently, like, you know, he said, I grew up Methodist, and now I come, you know, I'm coming to liquid. I'm liking it. In other words, he had nothing fresh to say about his relationship with God. He just kept referencing his spiritual history of his family. He had failed to make his faith personal as an adult. It wasn't living and vital. It was just a religious memory he was rehearsing over and over now as an adult, and he's living off that. Is that maybe for some of you? Can I be honest about that? Can we just talk about that? Maybe it was, you know, for you it was CCD, or you were an altar boy, and so you're like, I've grown up my whole life going to church. I know all about Jesus, so I'm pretty sure I'm a Christian. But we realize there's a big difference. Religion is not the same as a personal relationship with the living Christ. If your faith is based on your family's heritage, it's stale bread. And that's why maybe you're here today and you're like, dude, that's my faith. If I'm honest, my faith feels stale. I feel stuck. I feel stagnated. i just going through the motions. No judgment for you. I'm just so glad you're just being honest. I'm so glad you're here today. Because Jesus said to the stale bread disciples, look what he said. Hey, your mom and dad, ate the manna in the wilderness, yet what happened to them? They died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I, Jesus, am what? The living bread that came down from heaven, and whoever eats this bread, that's me, will what? They will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life 
of the world. In other words, the faith of your forefathers, your ancestors, your parents is not enough to save you. It may have given you a good foundation. You can thank God for that. But guess what? You must personally come into union with Christ yourself. You must receive him into you if you're going to taste eternal life. Because Jesus does not save wonder bread or stale bread believers. He's looking for living bread disciples. I'm the living bread. I'm alive. I want to put my spirit inside of you. I want you to experience my death so that you can be raised to new life right now by the power of God. See, it's a shame here that they didn't stick around because if they had, they would have discovered this deeper, richer meaning to Jesus's words. It's a beautiful invitation. Basically, after saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood, he clarifies that he's not talking physically. He's like, oh no, it's more real than that. I'm talking spiritually. Look what he says. He says, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for what? Nothing. It's not physical. The words I have spoken to you, they're full of what? The spirit and life. In other words, he wasn't calling his disciples to be cannibals or engage in some sort of strange pagan blood ritual. And he wasn't just using strong language for its shock value. Jesus is employing a jarring metaphor to reveal this deeper truth or invitation to discipleship, that for you to live, something must die. You see this in the physical world, don't you? Right now, what are you going to eat today? What are you going to eat later today? Some of you are going to go out for a hamburger. If you're going to have a hamburger, what dies? A cow. Some of you are going to go out and have chicken wings. If you have wings, what dies? A chicken. Some of you are, you know, some of you are going to order Domino's pizza. If you have Domino's pizza, what's going to die? You. That's just how that works. Something, something always dies, right? Think, right? Even though vegans, right? So you're like, I'm vegan. A plant's going to die, right? That's going to happen. The way that we are physically alive, the way that God designed our physical bodies is we actually have to take something that was once alive and it dies, and then what do we do? It's kind of strange. We put that dead thing inside of us and it brings us to life. It nourishes our body. It's real food. That's how we have energy. That's how we grow. Same thing with your soul, only deeper than that. He says, you must actually partake in my blood shed for you on the cross or your heart will die. If you don't actually enter into communion with my sacrifice on the cross, your soul will die. You are already dead right now in God's eyes. That's our, that's our state, the Bible says. Sin has separated us from the giver of life. And so God says, I'm going to send Jesus. He is going to die. And when you take him, he cleanses your heart of its sin. He fills you anew with the Holy Spirit. And you don't live for yourself anymore. You live for who? Christ. This is called union with Christ. Can we say this together? Union with Christ. It's the heart of what it means to be a Christian and to be a disciple. We draw our spiritual life from our union with Jesus. It's where you so personally identify with his death on the cross that you undergo a crucifixion of your natural self. You may say, well, you know, because we all have our own plans to save ourselves, but you know what the Bible says? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So when we partake in that, we actually, on our inside, we say, I'm identifying with the crucifixion of Jesus. I'm dying to myself. I'm dying to my agenda. I'm dying to my priorities. I'm dying to my apathy. I'm dying to my pride so that I can be raised to new life, a humble new life with the resurrection power of Christ in me. That's union with Christ. Without getting all technical about this, I want you to understand that because I know some of you are stuck in your faith walk 
And if you absorb this, take this into your heart today, I believe it can reignite this for you. Because a lot of people, um, I think a lot of us, just be honest, we um, settle for status quo Christianity, right? You're like, hey, you know, I raised my hand one time. Someone said, would you like to go to heaven? I was like, sounds good. And you did that. And now I say a few prayers and I go to church. I serve with kids. Um, What else? Uh, I try not to swear, you know. (laughs) I I was offended by your WTF thing before, so I think I'm a Christian. They're, They're missing. It's about sin management, Yeah. It's missing out on this rich life with God that God is saying, when you take Jesus into you, I can set you on fire with my love so that this is as real and as warm and as vital and as living as living flesh in your hand. Because when there's union with Christ, two things happen according to Jesus. You have a new identity. You are what? In Christ. And then Christ is what? In you. Look at verse 56 here. This is the doctrine of it. Whoever eats my flesh... And drinks my blood remains what? In me, you are in Christ, and I in them. This is a repeated theme of the New Testament over and over. When Jesus talks about eating his flesh, drinking his blood, he's talking about obviously dying on the cross for our sins. And he's like, no amount of good deeds or being a good person is going to save you. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says he took on all of our sin. And so your sin's removed. But in its place, what does he give us? His righteousness. Look at this verse. Think about how God sees you right now. Watch this. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. Here it is, his blood. So that in Christ, you might become the what? The righteousness of God. In other words, God looks at you and you know what he thinks right now? What a beautiful son of God you are. Look at you. I see Jesus all over you. And you're like, uh, you don't know what I did last night. <laughs> it doesn't matter. That's your guilt. That's not God's guilt because in Christ, there's no condemnation. When God looks at you, he sees a daughter of God. There's the righteousness of Christ that gets placed in your account. There's an exchange that takes place. Christ takes our sin and we get his righteousness, the sinless life, the perfection of it. You're playing with house money. That's basically what I can tell you. This came real for me after college. I was uh, backpacking with some friends, roommates from college. We went to uh, Europe, you know, backpack around. We're like, we're going to backpack around and, you know, on a train for five weeks. We, we got $300. It was gone by the third day, you know, right? And so we arrived in Amsterdam with no money, okay? And we spent it all on a U2 concert. And so we arrived in Amsterdam, three in the morning, and there's the, all the hostels are full. So we're walking out in the streets, and, you know, and the people are like, well, the red light district is open. We're like, probably not. Uh, you know, they're like, you can sleep. You know, hostels are closed. The brothels are open. We're like, probably not either of those. And so we're out on the streets walking around, and there are some sketchy characters at 3 a.m. in Amsterdam, I can tell you this. And so we look to our roommate, Clark. Clark's dad ran a gutter business, you know, like gutters like on a house, you know, and all that. And I was like, oh, you know, we call him the king of the gutters, you know. And, uh, and, but what I realized, we didn't know this, Clark's dad actually provided all the gutters for the buildings of IBM and Microsoft. So it was actually, it was incredible, like this shingling empire. And we said, Clark, call your dad. And he's like, dude, we don't have any money to call your dad. We're like, call Collect. And so he called his dad Collect, and he said, you know, Mr. Clark, uh, we don't have money. We're out here on the streets and everything. And Clark's dad wired money into his account. And so we checked into a hotel. We're like, oh, we're saved, you know. We got to sleep, and we get out in the morning, and we're like, oh, man, we're going to be busted again. And what we realized is Clark's dad had actually wired money into Clark's account for the remainder of our trip. It was very generous. We did have to pay him back. But we, we, he did this for the next two weeks. 
And it was very interesting to me because every time then when we partook of something, we had a meal or whatever, we're like, ah, thanks, Clark. Uh, you know, it was like, did we earn that money? No. Did we, did we, um, did we pay for our stuff? No. We were drawing off of Clark's father's wealth in order to live freely and safely. It's the same thing in Christ. When your sins are moved, your account in God's eyes is filled up with the righteous life of Jesus. Right now, how does God see you? He doesn't just see you as forgiven, though you are. He says, I look at you as if you always obeyed. I see you as the son or daughter of God I designed you to be, sinless and becoming like your brother Jesus. He has put his life into you, and if you are willing to die to yourself, he will live through you. God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in Christ you become the righteousness of God. Think about how hopeful this is. Some of you who struggle with guilt for your past sins, guess what? That is false guilt. God doesn't condemn you anymore. When God looks at your past, whose past does he see? Christ. He says, I, when I look at you, I see Christ bleeding on the cross. And I say, that's who Eric is. That's who Frank is now. That's whose blood is running through their veins. There's no blood guilt on your hands anymore. So if you're an alcoholic, if you struggle with addiction, that's one of the problems. I think we use these labels and they become our identity. You are not an alcoholic. You are not an addict. That's not all you are. You are a son or daughter of the Most High God who struggles with addiction, but has power in the name of Christ. Amen? You have powers over this. You, have pa- you don't understand what's in you. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Even right now, I'm preaching to you, but I'm preaching to you out of my union with Christ. This morning I prayed. I said, less of Tim, more of Christ. God, let your word go out and bang into people's hearts so they would understand the intensity of God's love for you right now. You are in Christ Jesus. God does not love you anymore if you obey perfectly because you already have in Jesus. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a what? Say it together. New creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Your old self gets nailed to the cross with Jesus and you're raised to new life by the Holy Spirit. So understand Becoming a Christian is not a self-improvement plan. (laughs) Like, let's patch up or gloss over the sinful spots in my life. It's a crucifixion plan. (laughs) Jesus doesn't come to help you. He comes to kill you. (laughs) Replace your dead life with his new life. You know what Paul writes in Galatians 2? Look what he says. I've been what? Crucified with Christ. I don't even live anymore, but Christ lives in me. As a Christian, you are an inhabited being. Through faith, I die with Christ every day to my old way of life so that he can live in me and through me for the blessing of others. That's the gospel, guys. That's what it means to be a disciple. When you get struck in the heart by the sheer love of God, his son dying for me and now living in me, and you say, awesome, I'm dying. Take up the cross daily. Paul says, the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me. He did this for me. He gave himself up for me. Isn't that beautiful? Does that describe your faith in this moment? See, you really can't follow Jesus unless you daily draw on your union with Christ because this is the source of eternal life. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. You need to eat the living bread. Take my life into yours and let me live through you. 
Life of Jesus, body broken for you, his blood shed for you. Coming to life right now. Father God, come into my life. Renew me today. Live through my mind. I offer my mind. Cleanse it. Control my lips right now. God, keep me faithful right now to my wife. I pray that you help me to sacrifice for this family, this church family. That's what I was doing this morning when I come to minister to you. I don't come to minister to you out of my own strength. That'd be a folly. I come to, to, to minister the word of God. I, we come to give you real food and drink. Which of these are you? Wonder bread follower. You're here for what Jesus can give you, Christians with benefits. Stale bread, you're like, man, that doesn't really describe my life, and it's actually a little bit intense. You're making me scared. Or are you a living bread believer where you're like, dude, I know exactly what you're talking about. I encountered one of you this week. I won't name their names. I was at a campus, and a woman came up to me. She said, Pastor, I just got to tell you what Jesus is talking to me about. And it was awesome because I said, really? He's, he, he's speaking to you? She goes, literally this morning, he told me something very powerful. And she was talking like I met with him at Starbucks kind of thing. And so we get together. And you know when you meet one of those, we're like, this is real for you. Because her face just kind of glowed. And I said, what's he telling you? And she opens her journal. And she's got volumes and volumes of writing of what the Lord is saying to her. And she starts telling me what Christ is talking to her about. And it's, your life isn't perfect. She actually started saying, <clears throat> I was abused in the past when I was in my teens. And God is going back there and healing that abuse. And I had these addictions in my 20s. And he hasn't only forgiven me. I think he's, gonna, he's using my life to work freedom in other people's life. And it's incredible. And right now, I have this issue with my parents. But here's what God's doing. And I'm pressing, excuse me. Oh, my goodness. Pardon me, Father. Oh, <clears throat> that's not sacrilegious. I just need that for a minute. She's talking. Like Jesus is speaking to her right there. And it was so alive in her. It was alive. It's called the Holy Spirit. That is living bread that is union with Christ, somebody who Christ lives in and actually living out. What do you do when God says something hard to you or something you don't like? Do you step back? When your Christian walk gets difficult or stale, you say, ah, it's just getting hard. I'm, I'm dropping out. Or do you say, more, Lord. Whatever it takes, I want more of Christ in me and more of me in Christ. See, it's very simple to follow Christ, but <laughs> it can be hard to swallow for some. Could I ask which of these are you? Are you here today because you want to hear something, you know, sweet or tickle your ears or, I don't know, something relevant? Do you come to church because you're looking to get something out of Jesus? Oh, Jesus will give you incredible things, but they're benefits. They're not Christ. They're not himself. Or is your faith the stale bread of religion? Maybe you're here today because it's expected. It's just part of your religious routine. This is what you've done on Sundays for a very long time. And maybe if you're honest, you feel stuck or stagnant in your faith. Maybe you're at a crossroads where you know what Christ is asking you to do, and you're like, I'm at a weak point. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't obey. We'll see how hard it gets. Or maybe you're here because your heart is pricked right now, and you're like, man, I, don't, I want the living bread. I know that God is calling me to something deeper, an intimacy with him that's rooted in the cross and the shed blood of Jesus. Well, today, we want to kick off the series by giving you a chance to have fresh union with your Savior, to reject the wonder bread hype and the stale bread religion for the living bread of Christ, okay? And so Christ is here today, and we're going to take time to renew our relationship through communion. Do you understand where communion comes from? Union with Christ. We're coming into community with the Father as a family. That's what happens at the table, the Lord's Supper. Every time we partake of the bread, 
and the cup. These are the symbols Jesus chose. And he said, you're going to have to do this regularly in order to remember me and refocus your heart around why we're doing what we're doing as a church. Whenever we eat the bread and drink the cup, it's not a way to a better life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? Now, before your campus pastor comes to lead you in communion, I just want to give you a chance to make this personal. And I want to challenge some of you right now who are like, you know, I don't even we talk about this. I don't really know for sure if I am a Christian. Or maybe you've been coming for some time and you're like, I'm actually leaning into him. I want to follow Jesus. How do you do that? I have some people sometimes say, what do I have to do to be a Christian? Tell me the basics. I'm like, it is simple as ABC. And if you've never heard this before, I'm going to make this very, very simple for you. The first is A, you admit your sin. You tell God what he already knows about you. I realize sin is not a popular term in our world, but it's reality in a broken world. God created you and me for perfection. We all fall short. And you know what the Bible says? If you claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And God is not in us, this truth. So salvation begins by A, admitting your sin, but then believing in Jesus. That not historically, just historically, I guess, like I think he was a good teacher or something. No, that he was the God-man who entered this world and lived a sinless life that you were supposed to live. And the death he died is the one that you deserved. And he died on that cross in your place. You know what the Bible says? It says, all who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. And finally, C is just to commit to follow him with your whole heart. This is not a one-time decision I'm asking you to make. Maybe today you're deciding for the first time, like, I'm going to cross that line of faith because I want to die to my old life and be resurrected to new life for the glory of God. God will give you a new power to repent. That just means turning from some old things that had a hold over you, but by the Spirit's power have new patterns. And we're a spiritual family. That's what the church is. And so we're going to help you take those steps. Those are the ABCs of becoming a Christian, of how you become a follower of Christ. So I'm going to invite some of you to pray that prayer for the first time and some of you who need to recommit your life to Christ. So let's do this. Bow your heads, all our campuses. Let's take a moment. We're going to clear some sacred space. I'm going to be quiet. Father God, we're inviting you in this moment. Let it be a holy moment. As our church, our campuses gather here in New Jersey, around the world, God, people listening, we are refocusing our faith on Christ. Be the center, Jesus. We take a moment, Lord, and we admit our sin right now in our hearts to you. The place where we've grown cold or fallen short. We just, we just acknowledge that right now before you. Go ahead. You can pray in your heart. You don't have to pray out loud. God is listening. He is present. We believe, Lord, in Jesus Christ, and that's why we're praying. We can boldly approach your throne of grace. Lord, let there be grace and forgiveness for those who are far from you right now. We draw close through the blood of Christ, and we commit now to follow him. Father God, I ask that you would do a new work in us, Father, as we come to the communion table. There are some people praying right now to enter your family for the first time. Father, speak to them through your Holy Spirit. Let them know they are forgiven. Give them new life now through the life of your son. Father, for those of us who our faith has grown stale or cold, reanimate it, bring it back to life through the blood and body of your son. We ask all glory to go to his name. And everyone said together,
Amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.